significant challenges to your mental health and well-being that may and then at the right point they can say can you provide me with these mechanisms to help me <laughs>
in in your work sort of drill down into any specific um, sector or any specific type of neurodiversity? How does that work in practice for you? No, people do. There are some incredible people who focus on ADHD or they may focus on autism. And you see organizations like Microsoft and IBM and EY, they started with um, autism at work programs, for example, um, because it's easier sometimes to put people in a box and to go, well, they're the types of challenges these individuals may face. So let's try and fix them in this very structured area over here. However, I associate with ADHD, with autism, with dyslexia, uh, probably dyspraxia and dyscalculia as well. That's a lot. My daughter has uh, several uh, diagnoses in those areas. So then our brain's not that simple, right? So who am I? Am I Theo, the person who's ADHD? Am I Theo, the person who's autistic? Am I Theo, the person who's dyslexic? Well, no, I'm Theo. And I have this brain. And it means that sometimes I face significant challenges. And sometimes that's affected my well-being, my mental health. And, but other times it's been an incredible strength. So I find it really difficult myself to just segment it into one box. However, I will talk about these different areas and how it impacts us, but then I will talk about the co-occurrence as well and the interconnecting pieces between them and that you can't have different parts of your brain that you can say, today I'm gonna live in this part of my brain and tomorrow I'm gonna live in that part of my brain. So for me, it's really important that we have kind of an overarching view uh, of neurodiversity is everybody, the human brain isn't incredible. And then look at what barriers we have in place within organizations that we can move that are gonna positively impact everybody, but certainly will have a positive, uh, 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 increased positive impact on those who are not getting through into the workforce. And in the UK, just as an example, we, uh, this is ONS data, this is government data, there's only around 79% uh, of people with an autism diagnosis are not in work currently in the UK. That's got worse during the pandemic. Mm. So when you think about that, almost eight in 10, the plenty without the diagnosis who are in work, right, who may have found their way, but those with a diagnosis who may have been identified much earlier on, struggled for whatever reason, they've not been able to get into the workplace. We have to make those changes and adjustments. But I, I fundamentally like to look from a positive strengths-based mindset because it, I used to go out and read uh, on the internet and in papers and I'd see professors, psychologists, clever people, and they'd list all the things wrong with somebody with autism or who's autistic, all the things who's wrong with somebody uh, who's ADHD. And, and I couldn't get my head around it. How can, you, how can you want to hire somebody when all you see is long lists of what's wrong with them? And the problem is, is that person will associate with those because for all their life, they've been told what's wrong with them, right? So it's really hard for the person who's autistic as well to go, oh, no, 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 I'm going to focus on the strengths. When they feel the challenges, they've seen the challenges all their life. That's what they've experienced. So I wanted to try and not just help organizations see the strengths, but help individuals start to see and appreciate their strengths, not to discount the challenges, but to embrace the strengths as well as the challenges and be able to walk into an interview like anyone else and not go, I'm autistic or here's all my challenges, but to go, here's my strengths, just like anybody else would say, here's my strengths, I'm proud of them. And then at the right point, they can say, 
can you provide me with these mechanisms to help me? Because for me to lean into my strengths, I may need a slightly tailored technology or a tailored environment, or I might need to spend a slightly more time at home, which is now not a big surprise, right? But these are the yeah. types of things that it's not going in there with, I'm autistic, this is my label, these are all my challenges, that's the end. Because I've seen too much of discrimination on that basis. So that's why I take a broader overarching approach to look at all these different cognitive variations, because I think that's where the power of sustainable change and transformation is within this space. Uh, that That's a really good way of looking at it. And I think um, for people who are neurodiverse or people who don't associate themselves with neurodiversity and neurodiversity, I, I believe, has, has expanded immensely in terms of awareness, of self-awareness in the last few years. So I, I know, for example, when I um, some years back was, was trying to go and do a, a further study and I thought, oh, I'd, I'd go and do an MBA and then realized that it, it took me a long time to do the maths part of, of of what I needed to do to get into an MBA. Uh, thankfully, I think I turned it around in the sense that I, I went from thinking I, I need to do an MBA because everybody's doing an MBA into doing a, a master's in creativity, innovation, and leadership, which is a totally new way of looking. And, and I think that sometimes is important because we, we try and pigeonhole ourselves into um, something that is so structured that everybody else seems to be doing. But if I try and do it, chances are I may fail at it, I may not be good at it. And so you, you end up going further down a rabbit hole rather than going into something that is your strength. So I love the way that you say you, you look at this. It's, it's interesting, right? Because the one of the challenges that the, the neurodiverse, neurodivergent, neurominority community, one of the face, challenges they face is constantly having to mask, constantly doing what you've mentioned there. And we all do it. It's to the extent that you have to do it, why you're doing it, and the effect it has on your mental health and well-being. That's the difference, right? We may all go into a situation and go, I'm going to be somebody or something else because I don't think I fit in here. But for, for people who are having challenges neurologically fitting in, sometimes they're doing it to such an extent, it is, um, it is massively putting pressure on themselves, their brain, the way that they feel. Um, and what we found, especially more recently, and I see this in my daughter, is that masking, especially amongst women um, in the classroom, for example, girls in the classroom, um, we're seeing that it, the boys may be more likely, not always, to act out. The girls may be more likely to just quietly sit at the back of the room. Now, that then doesn't get dealt with, and therefore it gets missed. And therefore, you continue to mask throughout your life. Therefore, you continue to do what you think society wants from you in this instance, right? Very good example. You go and do a qualification that may not be suited to your needs because you think that is what society demands of you. Rather than actually going, I'd be much happier and better doing this over here, which ultimately will give me more because it's leaning into my significant strengths and abilities. It took me a long time to realize that, um, that some of the things that I started out with that I really loved and enjoyed that I suppressed often because people would define me as being a bit quirky, a bit odd, 
a bit too overwhelming, a bit too much. And now I get, uh, there's still those people who say that, right? That's fine. <laughs> but I get a lot of people going, wow, um, you have so much power and energy and enthusiasm and, and you're so um, engaging and inspiring. And right, all of that, I've leaned more into that as I've got older. I've gone with it, right? I, I put it to one side because I felt like I was, it, it felt awkward. And now I'm leaning into that more. It's just allowed me to feel much happier. Um, it feels like I can um, sustain the work that I'm doing because I'm not trying to fit into be this person that other people need me to be. I'm just being much more successful. I'm there. I'm a better human, a better father for my family. Doesn't mean I don't face challenges, um, but it does mean that I'm really able to understand what drives me, what gives me energy, what helps me be productive. And that allows me to um, sustain the, the more positive elements of my mental health and well-being rather than uh, going into those areas of challenge, which is quite easy to do, especially when you're somebody who has high levels of energy. And it, I guess athletes, you see it all the time, when they stop doing the thing that they love, football, cricket, tennis, whatever it is, and it's like a, off the edge of a cliff, a lot of them really suffer with a mental health and well-being. And it's no surprise that a high proportion of athletes and individual athletes are ADHD, right? You're putting all that energy in, and the minute it stops, they, they feel lost. What do they do? And I kind of feel that it's finding your strength, finding the thing that you feel uh, most comfortable at. It may still take up a lot of energy, but ultimately, uh, it's... It, drives you it keeps you engaged and happy and motivated uh, which is really important for sure so as 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 you start to describe yourself in in that um, image i'm thinking it it needs a, a certain level of self awareness to 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 understand to to recognize strength in yourself and then Again, as you you've talked, it's it's like there's a progression, there's a maturity, there's this is who I am, and instead of just sitting in who I am, I am developing who I am in the environment that builds on the strength. And, and this is what I'm wondering. So, have you got some kind of mechanism or some kind of way in which people can one recognize it and two find the ways in which it can be developed? Yes. So, I mean, I used to do a lot of self-destructive stuff, right? Because, uh, like, if I'm on the edge of the cliff, I may as well be off the cliff. I, it was always in my mind. If I'm on the edge, I may as well be off. Um, and that that takes a lot of time and, and risk and, and putting yourself in situations that are not helpful to finally realize that was not helpful. That damaged me. You know, that put me at risk. And now I need to make better decisions. And that means if I'm on the edge of a cliff, I don't need to be off the cliff. Actually, I can find ways to step back away from the edge to make better decisions. That still doesn't mean I can't take risk. I can't live life to the edge, but I don't always have to um, put myself in a position of danger. Um, and so me being able to understand that and part, part of it helps with having a family, right? Because immediately it's not just me and my partner, it's now kids and response and a house and all these other things. I can't keep putting myself in that position. Or I can, and people do, right? People do, and they may lose mortgages, they may lose their house, they may lose 
and they may be an entrepreneur and they may do this multiple times and they, they may end up still being successful right but to what to what extent have they damaged themselves their families uh their relationships in the world that they live in so i think being able to assess this about yourself where you put yourself at risk why do you put yourself at risk where you put yourself at harm why do you put yourself at harm where your energies uh, are put to the point of where you're at breaking point why all of these things and and this is for everybody right but definitely if you um are somebody who's uh, uh neurodivergent from a minority or neurodiverse and i keep using interchangeable terms there because i think it's really important people get very passionate about very specific terms yeah right uh, and i'm a bit more relaxed about it because i think what's most important is that we have these conversations not that we argue over whether you use that term or that term right which we get in, we get stuck in that sometimes. Um, so I think some of the mechanisms is you you can do stuff. My co-author, Professor Amanda Kirby, created something called Spiky Profiles. You can go and find it. She's got a piece of technology you can pay. I've done it. It's incredible. I wrote it in my book. I wrote an article about it. Um, and these Spiky Profiles are being able to identify your significant strengths versus your challenges, so that you can clearly see them. Now, what you'll find if you're somebody who's ND. You may have high cognitive spikes like me, um, for example, in creativity, really off the chart in creativity. Everybody's always telling me, Theo, you just come up with so many ideas. How do you do it? 99% of them are rubbish. <laughs> I come up with a lot, right? So if you need somebody to come up with a lot of ideas, here I am. However, I have a, sh a poor working memory. Right? I can barely remember more than three things. I can't remember dates. I can't remember names. I can't remember any level of detail. I struggle with numbers and maths. I mean, there's a lot of challenge that exists there that I could just get consumed. And I have done consumed by that to think I am no better than the worst human being on the, the lowest de denominator in terms of human brain on this planet. I'm the lowest. If I allow that to get me, right, because it could. But this is the spiky pro. And this is the brilliant thing about if individuals can really, truly understand, OK, they're the challenges. But where is the spike? that I have that is almost the opposite of those challenges. And part of the reason why I can't remember three things is because I have so much going on in my, literally, I'm telling my wife sometimes, I just, I'm like a glass of wine on a Friday or two to just stop my brain because it's working at such a rate that I find it exhausting. And it's like, yeah, yeah. but that's a lot of information going through my head. It stops me from being able to remember three things because you said three things, but I was seeing all these different things. I was hearing different conversations. I was seeing stuff moving in the sky. My head's going, right? But that's powerful if you can utilize what is happening there, right? And that's being able to like go, right, that is, that is how I'm creative. If I allow myself to go into that space, but find ways to pull some bits of those information, that's not remembering three things, that is pulling what's out there in the blue sky and pulling it back and going, let's use some of this. Right? Can, can I just check something with you, Theo, as, as you're talking? Uh, I'm hearing you as an individual saying, this is, this is how I am. This is the way I've been created. This is, this is, these are my key strengths. And you've got a, a, a system, a mechanism of identifying the spike. Yeah. Now, for me, it's like, okay, there's a spike, there's a zone in which I am. Wow, this is where I am. But I think some of the challenges are, I feel that there are for anyone 
is is to stay in the zone or know where, like you described, the edges, etc. So I'm wondering, can you say something about community in in that respect, or people who hold boundaries for you, or people who keep you in your zone or in your line? How does that how does that work for you? So let me tell you the the pro and con here. Often I talk about kryptonite. Right, so that's where the negative parts of um, life get in the way and they eliminate your spiky profile, your ability, your strengths. And often the kryptonite is put in your path by other people. And what a lot of people don't understand is what that kryptonite looks like. I, I may not understand what it looks like. And the person who may be my manager, for example, may not know. So they're inadvertently putting kryptonite in my way and I'm not seeing it and it's impacting me. And at the end of the day, whatever, I could be upset, I could be exhausted, I could be angry, like all of those emotions and feelings are because of these bits of kryptonite. So that kryptonite can be asking me to write. I can't write. Um, I don't hold a pen properly. I struggle to write. I can't spell. So all of these things for me are like trauma from when I was a child that's like kryptonite for me. Right? A lot of people may not understand the connection between what's happened to them today and what happened to them in school, right? And those connecting pieces. So it, I, one of the powerful things is not just understanding the community which you're talking about, which help. It's actually understanding those people that are harming you and hurting you. And by the way, that may also be you. <laughs> it may be yourself. Right. So understanding those are really important. And then the other bit is understanding who can give you energy and power and guide you and lift you up when you're down. And some of that comes from um, who I work with, um, understanding me really well. Uh, and that could be a manager. That could be a business partner. That can be a life partner, i.e. your wife or husband or whatever it may be. Having these people in your life is really important. But uh, understanding that they are the ones that, that support you and get you and are able to remove some of this kryptonite for you is really important. I've changed from one manager to another before. The one manager was dyslexic. She got me. She understood me. She removed kryptonite for me. The next manager literally threw it all in front of me. And I, I couldn't at the time. Like, I'm on a journey myself, right? I'm learning every day. And I couldn't see at the time. I didn't understand that this was kryptonite. It made me angry. It made me frustrated. I was working 10 hours a day anyway. And it, I, the way I probably dealt with that is through a combination of fight or flight. I, I ran sometimes and other times I fought. I'd get angry and say, and, but I couldn't express. So I'd be getting angry in a way that the manager wouldn't understand. So they just now see Theo's, this lovely guy is all of a sudden getting really agitated and angry. And so I, I think, you know, being able to position yourself where you're not dragged in to these systems and processes that harm you is really important. But we will all find ourselves there one day and we may not be able to extract ourselves from that place in that moment. COVID, an example. All of a sudden, you're busier than you've ever been. You've been asked to do things you've never been, done, been asked to do before. And you have no choice because you want to keep a roof over your head. And you're worried about your mortgage and your family and everything else. So that could go on for years. And, and the impact that that can have on you, your family, your relationship, everything else can literally 
break them. So I'd say it's a constant journey of assessing and analysing who's around you, what's being asked of you, how your daily activities change, right? And if they do, see the change, be aware of the change and think, right, how is this going to impact me? What interventions do I need to make? Do I need to be able to go up to somebody and say, actually, I really struggle with process. If you're going to leave this with me, it's probably going to break. So let's figure out how we automate it, share it, whatever. Uh, can't always be done, but having the conversations can sometimes help work through some of the challenges. And that, that says to me that you need that feedback loop to, to be there, whether it's on a day-to-day -day perspective or it's a seasonal or it, it, it's something that shifts in the environment. You know, in terms of business, the business environment is, is shifting so, so quickly. You know, all of the economic things, everybody's seeing a shift that is accelerating. So in, in that respect, do you have a way of, of keeping the feedback loop current? Is there a way in which, you know, we can systemize a, a feedback loop of, of people on a regular basis? Or so am, I dependent, what, am I dependent on myself to, to provide the, the support that I need or the ways in which I need to just stop and look for myself? So it's interesting because um, I had somebody come up to me about four years ago, uh, head of talent acquisition for a tech company, and go, I've got a candidate who wants to bring their mum on the call. Well, okay, well, they want to bring their mum on the call. What's the problem? I said, well, they can't bring their mum to work, right? So how can they bring their mum to a telephone interview? Like, what, what's that about? And I said, well, what's the barrier to them? And he said, well, it isn't one necessarily, you know. Um, I said, well, what would be your concern? Well, they, you know, they can't answer the questions. I said, fine, put parameters around it. But, like, tell me some more about the individual. And they said, well, they, they disclosed to me that on the autism spectrum and they're a developer. Um, and I said, well, listen, that mum is probably providing a coach because they've already realized that this individual is misunderstood or they misunderstand questions, nuances, and therefore they're not able to show their best selves in that context. And therefore they may continue to fail. Now, that is a that is a coach. What we've now seen is having uh, individuals who can support you in different areas, aspects and facets of life is really important. Those people who go on to be very successful often has had multiple coaches and advisors and, and people and communities that they've been a, a part of, right? So what you need to ensure as part of that loop that you're talking about is that it's not, um, it's not too tight a loop, right? It doesn't just rely on three people, your manager, your wife and I don't know, an, a single employee, right, or somebody else, because that loop will break down. Sometimes you may have problems with your partner where you just can't talk to them. It doesn't mean the relationship then. It just means at that moment you're struggling, so you can't communicate what you need to. But maybe they're struggling, so you don't want to put them in a position. So that, that part of the loop is broke. Your manager may change. Like I said, that part of the loop. Where's your loop? Where's your support network? Where's the people who can that can keep helping you? So what I would say is, this is where employee resource groups of organizations, if they're set up properly and independently and, you know, they're allowed to have the conversations that they need to can be helpful because there's a group in itself. Some of these groups you can get externally via social media. Young people are finding help and resource in TikTok. You know, the reality is 
diagnosis of ADHD has significantly increased because people are able to see people who represent them. Representation, right, is key. So all of these things are really important about how many people are there uh, around me who I can connect with, not all at the same time, at different points, for different reasons that I can lean on and that can lean on me. Because it's not one way, right? They, they may need help and support as well. And, and the more people you can set up in different areas, the more you can get your organization to lean in and help with things like employee resource groups, um, the more powerful it can get. Because everybody has their own agenda, right? Uh, and that means that that agenda can change, it can shift, uh, and you can be left high and dry. So that's what I would all, always think about that loop, who you're talking to, who you're engaging with, what the level of safety is within that, because you may be sharing some things which are highly sensitive, and what position that puts them in. Because sometimes that may be significant challenges to your mental health and well-being that may, may put your life at risk based on your own feelings and emotions. Like there's certain people like conveying that to may then put them at risk, right? And, and this is how important it is that you're constantly thinking about all these different relationships and all the different people who are supporting you and that you support and that you continue to adapt and change that because you yeah. grow and develop and change as do the people you're working with. And therefore that loop should not be the same people you're communicating with all your life. Doesn't mean you still don't stay close and connected or whatever it may be, but that needs to evolve and change as you do. And you need to support others uh, as you grow and develop. So that would be my thinking there. And I don't always do it well either, by the way. So, you, you know, it's easy to say. It's sometimes hard to do. I, I totally agree with, with all what you've said there, um, Theo, that that loop is fluid. So sometimes we, in, in Momentum, say to people, you know what, in order to build your resilience, you, you need to almost ask the question, of, of some anyone you meet, would you like to engage in a time-limited relationship with me? And that time is, if you hold that sort of perspective, you, you realize that everybody's in, in some sort of time-limited relationship. Could be five minutes, half an hour, two years, 50 years, but it's also always time-limited. So having that perspective gives us a sense of yeah, there, there's something that we can control, but there's a framework in which you can move in, there's a boundary in which you can move in. And without that, I think we lose the sense of how resilient we can be when this stuff hits the fan. And it's hitting the fan more and more now, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah. The other thing we say to people in, in terms of the, the resilience aspect, and I think it ties in very nicely with, with what you've been saying, is you need VAT in order to grow. And I, we say that VAT means vulnerability, accountability, and trust. And you may have said it in a different way, but I think it's the same thing. It's like saying, hey, I need to be vulnerable to somebody in order for them to get me. Uh, if I want to change, I need to be accountable to somebody. But at the end of the day, I need a safe space because without that safe space, I ain't talking to you and you ain't talking to me. So I think we're, we're kind of talking the same language, but perhaps in a, in a different way. And it's great to see that as, as you interact with people, that you provide that space in which we can at least start to have the conversations 
and then move it forward. So well, it's uh, it, please. Well, it's I, you know I think the the vulnerability piece is really important for me, and that's why I put myself out there. You go, it helps with getting to a certain age, getting to a certain understanding and and comfort with a level of risk with your career because there's a level of privilege now, right? So and, and I look at my child and I think there ain't no second chances here. Like so I can I can go out and I can say this is me, this is how it is, some here's some of the challenges. I give away really still only 10% of the truth. But the truth is there's a lot more challenge that has existed beyond what I share. A lot of it is more related to today because that's the most immediate thing that I see and feel. And that's how I feel I can support others at kind of overcoming. Uh, some of the challenges that they face. But I think the vulnerability is really key because you're right. Otherwise, I like there's so much information, content, viewpoints out there um, that without the vulnerability, without opening up and showing yourself, then how can you really expect anybody to buy in, to believe, to connect with what you're saying? Um, I certainly can't with, with others. Um, I need to see the human side of, of that person in front of me. I like the way you you, you say that. You're giving away the ten percent, and the ten percent is is true, it's real, and there's there's a lot more behind it. Um, but you're giving away at least most of it, I guess, would be strength based, and perhaps a few of them might be challenge orientated. But it, it's all in within that ten percent that you're saying, "Hey, this this is me, this is what I look like now at this point in time." And perhaps this is where I've come from. And then you too can walk forward in that. Yeah, I mean, I talk about some of the challenges actually more in, in, a, in a, like, the, the reality is it becomes a funny thing. Like, if I can't remember names, I'm telling you, I can't remember your name. Like, that's, that's the reality. I've never told, yeah. up until recently, I've never told people, I don't walk around telling people I can't remember their names. I do everything but tell them because it's embarrassing. So, I like, I find any mechanism not to let that person know that I can't remember their name, especially if it's like the fifth time I've met them at an event and they come up and give me a hug and I'm like, oh, I just can't remember your name. Like, I know who you are, I just can't remember your name. So it's, so I always try and think about what are those challenges that I've faced and how can I just share it in a really human way? It's not the end of the world. But sometimes it's felt like that in a moment when I've realized that, or the person realizes I don't remember their name. It feels horrible. But that's why I try and I try and humanize uh, or I try and just laugh about some of this stuff as well, because that helps break it down and helps make people realize that we shouldn't be so serious about some of this stuff because it's hard for humans. You know, it's hard. Uh, that's so true that, that it comes back to what you're saying about masking earlier on. And it's if I have to mask, I have to be stiff. I have to. There's a wall that comes up. So, hey, I can't remember your name. Okay. Are you Fred? Hey, Jane? Are you Peter? Are you Paul? Okay. And then we can move on from that point. But if 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 it is that I... Sorry. And and I think it's, it's really important because most people do know you don't know who you're talking to. They will stand in front of you, and but nobody's actually acknowledging this elephant in the room. You don't know who you're talking to, and we're having this weird sort of conversation, and neither of us are moving forward. But let's let's move this forward beyond this 
little sticking point, and let's get to something perhaps more important. But if we stick at the sticking point, this wall is, is like, wow, whereas it can be like this, and we can find different ways in which we're looking to collaborate. And that's key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Get to that point. Just, just um, as we're kind of, we're gonna draw down a little bit now towards uh, the end of our conversation. Just, just tell me, Theo, how do you see the, the neurodiverse community of people being impacted perhaps more than, than others with the, with the COVID situation that we've gone through? Wow. Well, it's not just the COVID situation. It's now the, the, the challenges that exist beyond that, right? We see, um, you know, with um, uh, the wars that currently exist globally um, and famine um, and the, the challenge with climate um, and the sustainability of the planet. Like, we, we can't underestimate all of those things combined. And, and then when we think about um, the neuro-minorities, and that they've already been negatively impacted in so many ways by industrialization and globalization, um, that actually we need to really think about how we are um, currently segregating people from society. And that comes back to like the 80% of people out of work, right? And it's got worse. So there are incredible opportunities that have come from COVID, for example, like people being able to work more remotely, only hearing yesterday that that trend is going to continue. It's currently like three days in the office, but they reckon it's going to continue to shift. Environments are going to have to adapt and change. Now, those types of things are positive because if organizations are going, well, we're only going to get people in two days a week. How can we make those environments incredible? And if we think about uh, the challenge that environments have had on individuals, too much noise, too much light, um, too much chaos, um, lack of ability for individuals to be able to focus and to deliver on work, to say, don't worry about any of that. Now, when you come into the environment, we're going to create creative spaces. We're going to create spaces for innovation. We're going to create spaces where you can go and sit with a small group um, and you can focus on maybe solving a problem, a task or something. You know, like um, these, these kind of spaces that are almost gamified in their, in their way of being. You know, we go in with like this idea of what we're going to do today and how we're going to interact and engage with other people. And it's set out so we can plan it and think about it. And therefore, the stress of going into an office without knowing the kind of the things that are going to be in front of us and ahead of us. Like all of those things, I think, have great power. And because we'll be redesigning a lot of these workspaces, just like the BBC actually before COVID, their Cardiff, um, their new Cardiff offices were designed neurodiversity front and centre. And that means, you know, they were color coded. They got all the spaces designed with neurodiversity in mind. I imagine if all workforces, all organizations said, right, as we design these new spaces, we're now going to consider neurodiversity front and center, just as we now consider how we build a building and whether it's accessible. Right. So do you have a lift? Do you have other means and ways? For people to access that building, whether they're in a wheelchair, whether they're in crutches, whether they've got a child or whatever other uh, thing that may be impacting the individual that may stop them being able to access that environment, we've not considered it neurologically. That is the big, powerful opportunity that we have 
where instead of allowing all of these challenging aspects that are going on globally to, to just um, like crush uh, neurodiversity, um, we have an opportunity to utilize it. But yeah. what I say is we have to we have to do it has to be neurodiversity by design rather than neurodiversity by accident. And what we've seen through tech companies now, fast growth companies seem to be hiring a lot more uh, neurodiverse people, but they're doing it by accident. And to your point earlier, when we do it by accident, it may seem okay at one point, but because these organizations are going through several stages of growth, maybe in a two-year period, several stages of growth, several stages of seed investment and of um, different latter stages of investment as well, that often means changing leadership, changing processes and systems and rapidly. So you've got a workforce that's 50% neurodiverse, right, by accident, and then you go through these changes and then an organization wonders why they lose their people at a rapid rate. So again, neurodiversity by design, that we think about it, we consider it in all facets and aspects of our life, of our business, of politics, of education, right? If we can really start to put it front and center, we solve so many of these problems and challenges that uh, neuro-minorities may face in the coming years. But we gotta do more about it because only a small percent of organizations, 4% of organizations are really considering this in any meaningful way. It's not enough. We need to get uh, small to medium enterprises thinking about neurodiversity by design as early on as possible because they're quite neurologically diverse as we stand already. For sure. I, th I think that's so important. I just want to pull that point out to you that, that very often we look at you think, yeah, these are big companies, these are huge organizations who have that sort of resource. But sometimes the, the drawing down into just a little bit of design work at the start can save a lot of grief, a lot of loss of, of, of talent along the way. And it doesn't, I don't think it, it, you're saying it, it won't take a lot, but it takes some sort of thinking about it and planning it in, in a deliberate way. In exactly the same way we, we've looked at, at physical um, constraints, we can look at it from, from that sort of um, neurological perspective. Definitely. Right, just to, to highlight what that looks like for everybody, you invite people into a room for a very simple task, right? When you invite them in, what you need to do is ask them, right? Tell them what you're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And what changes do we need to make to help you? So, we're, so this task is cut in a straight line in a piece of paper. We're inviting plenty of people in. We tap ourselves on the back because we think we're being very inclusive. Um, and these people come in and they all sit down and then we go, right, there's scissors in the jar on the desk. Can you all come and collect a pair of scissors and cut a straight line of piece of paper? You've got five minutes, go. Now, somebody's in a wheelchair. They can't actually maneuver around the tables. It was difficult enough for them to get in to get to the pair of scissors to cut a straight line of piece of paper. Oh, right, so they've got a problem. Somebody else has got arthritis. They can't get their hands in the scissors that you provided. Someone else is left-handed. You provided right-handed scissors. They can do it, but they're really gonna struggle to get the line straight. That's not fair. Somebody else is 
uh, from a neurominority. They may be autistic or dyslexic or ADHD. You've got all windows all around, right? And they're distracted by the loud noise and the lights and all the people outside. So they keep trying to focus on this thing, but there's so much else going on. You know, all of a sudden, this very inclusive task has not become that inclusive, right? And if you didn't ask at the beginning and say, we want you to cut a straight line on a piece of paper, we've got a right-handed pair of scissors, do you have a challenge with that? Well, actually, yes, I'm left-handed. So have you got left-handed? Oh, no, we haven't. Okay, great. So you start to, just by, just by giving people a bit at the beginning, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Do you have any challenges with what we're going to do? You know, and it allows people to start to have that dialogue. We just don't do enough of that. That should happen in project teams. That should happen when we come together with people we've not worked with before. I mean, in life, when we're engaging with somebody, like, we just don't do it enough. And I need to do better by it. You know, I'm constantly reviewing all the things that I do and how can I do it better. But we've got to open ourselves up to it. Uh, and I think that's the way that we're really going to solve some of the greatest challenges is ultimately by asking the questions up front and providing as much information as we can. Excellent. I, I love I love what you just described because it's opened my eyes to to what's possible, and and I think it's it needs a lot more conversation to to start to 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 break through the assumptions that we all have. So. In my head, none of these things may be of, of, of any relevance to myself, but it may be to, to somebody else in the room. But it, unless you start to ask those questions in a meaningful way, we're stuck with the assumptions and end up with the negative results that stop that creative process from carrying on. Tio, it's been fabulous talking with you. Just, just as we, we finish, where do people find you in, in the big open space? So I live on LinkedIn. You can find me there, LinkedIn, Theo Smith UK. Um, I hang out on Twitter as well, but not as often. Um, and you can find me via www.neurodiversityworld.com. Um, and to be honest, if you just put Theo Smith Neurodiversity into the internet, there will be all kinds of um, weird and wonderful things that you may find out there uh, on, on the work that I do. And I've written the book, co-authored the book Neurodiversity at Work, um, published by Cogan Page. You'll find it on Amazon. You'll find it in Wardstones. You'll find it in all four corners of the earth. Um, and that's where we put all of our knowledge, our insights, our conversations into one book. And we won Business Book a Year for D&I uh, for that book this year in the UK. Fabulous. Theo, it's been a pleasure. And I wish you all the best with, with the rest of the day. Take care for now. Likewise. Thank you very much. Bye.